Welcome to the Nourishing Autism podcast, where we take a deep dive into the research on autism and dietary changes, nutrition supplements, and lifestyle modifications. Every week, we break down nutrition topics in an easy-to-understand way for you to feel less overwhelmed and feel confident on your nutrition journey with autism. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Nourishing Autism podcast. I'm your host, Britton Coleman, the autism dietitian, and I had one of my favorite people on for a podcast episode today. It's my colleague, Elisa Rocks, and we have been connected for the past few years because we do very, very similar things. We also use very similar testing, and today we talked a lot about food sensitivity testing, if it's accurate, what we use, what we recommend. So if you you have a child who you think may have a food sensitivity, this is an awesome episode for you to listen to. We even dig into the differences between food allergies, sensitivities, and intolerances. It's a really good episode. So I want to introduce Elisa. Elisa Rocks is a registered dietitian and an autism nutrition specialist. She helps kids with autism feel well so they can lead healthier, happier lives. She offers comprehensive one-on-one support, focuses on repairing the gut, resolving food sensitivities, replenishing nutrients, and re building a positive relationship with food for picky eaters. Elisa is also a writer for my resource, the Autism Nutrition Library. She lives in upstate New York with her husband, Matt, their two children, and two Australian shepherds. I hope you really enjoy this episode with Elisa, and I can't wait for you to learn more about food sensitivity testing and how to take next steps. Thank you so much, everybody, for being here. I'm so excited to have Elisa Rocks join us today talking about nutrition for autism, but also digging into food sensitivity, a topic that many people have questions on. So thanks so much for being here, Lisa. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Of course. It's been a long time coming. We were just talking about that. Definitely. (laughs) For many years. So I'm, I'm glad to have you here and you contribute to the autism nutrition library. And I feel like we just have such a huge overlap in, in what we do and what we believe about nutrition and autism. Yeah, for sure. I love the library. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) So tell us about yourself and how you serve your clients. Yeah. So I've been a dietitian for about eight years now, and I became interested in nutrition for autism back in 2013. My cousin Lawrence, he was two at the time and he was diagnosed with autism. And I'm really close with his mom. My aunt, we're kind of, we're like sisters in a way. And I wanted to help her. So, you know, just to help him get back on track, he had so many gut issues and endless meltdowns. It was, it was really hard. He was a very picky eater too. And I could just tell, like, he just didn't feel well, you know, you know, I, I also felt like I barely knew him. Like I couldn't get to know his personality because he was just so bogged down by his symptoms, like feeling so crummy. It like reminds me of that (laughs) Snickers commercial. Like you're not you when you're hungry. It's like, you're not you when you feel so crummy. (laughs) So true. It was sad. I I was like, oh gosh, like what is this little boy actually like? So at the time I, I knew nothing about nutrition for autism and, you know, in an effort to help her and him, I started researching and I, you know, brought everything that I found to her and we tried different things with diet and supplements and, you know, working on his picky eating and working with other, the other doctors that she was working with and therapists. And 
you know, he made, he made really great progress and he's doing really great now. I just fell in love with this topic, I guess, in, in all of that. I was like, well, this is, I guess I didn't intend to end up here, but this is where I am. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. And then in 2020, I opened my private practice and I work one-on-one with kids with autism and obviously their, their families, their parents, you know, just working on picky eating, gut issues. Absolutely. Cause that's so it's like the thread that seems to connect nearly every client. Um, and yeah, kind of working on getting things right on the inside so that they can feel better on, and that shows on the outside. So you can like, you know, see their actual personality, like I would say. That's so true. And I think a lot of people don't understand why nutrition is so important for autism. And we can go into all of like the biochemical reasons on what, you know, what's going on in the gut balance and what's going on with neurotransmitters. But at the end of the day, it's really just kids feeling better and after and all those other things. Great too. We often them, them, but it's just helping kids feel better and just reach their full potential and yeah, be able to be their, their true selves. And that's exactly what it's all about. Yep. I love that. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm so glad that I mean, I say all the time, it's like, we need so many dietitians in this field. If one in 48 kids are diagnosed on the spectrum, then it's like, we have a lot of catching up to do. So it makes me like, I love being a part of other dietitians who also work in this area. So it's really, there's very few of us. So very few. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so to help kids feel better, a lot of the times what we're looking at is more individualized approaches. We're not just going for one size fits all approach. And I think a lot of people want nutrition to be that this, this one protocol that works for every single person on the autism spectrum. And you and I both know that that's not even close to being true. Yeah. I think a lot of people have questions. Well, then how, how do you individualize it? How do you, you know, make a diet or supplements or whatever it may be? How do you make it fit that child? And my answer is often lab testing. And I know that you really utilize lab testing as well. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that it's necessary for kids on the spectrum? What are your, what are your feelings toward labs? Yeah. Positives and negatives, uh, more positives. I think it's super useful, but can be like a bit of a black hole because everything is connected. So, you know, you start with a stool test and you're looking at the gut and based on the results, you know, you probably want a food sensitivity test to see if there's, you know, inflammatory reactions from foods they're reacting to, or if there's, then you want a micronutrient test because there might be nutrient deficiencies because there's damage in the gut. It's like, like an onion, you just keep peeling back layers. So it can get expensive. That's the downside, but you know, there's ways to combat that. So in my practice, I try to keep it as minimal as possible, like stool panel, micronutrient panel, food sensitivity panel. Yeah, I agree. Top three. That's like top three. I, you know, I'll, some parents like really want, they want as much information as they could possibly get. So sometimes like a toxin panel be super, can be super useful. So I'm always happy to order more, but I say to parents like, it's not necessary, but it gives us a map. Like, so at least we're not shooting in the dark. Like we know where we're going rather than, you know, I can use, I can use my knowledge to make informed decisions based on symptoms, but it's not going to, 
it's going to be a slower, much slower process than if you were to make a targeted approach using testing. I 100% agree. And I think the ones that you laid out, the stool testing, the micronutrient food sensitivity, I think that covers so many bases and can a lot of times can, you see some big marker there, it can say, okay, this is indicative of further testing down this road or whatever right. it may be. So I feel like that can open up the gates, but that in itself covers so much of your general nutrition. I have so many clients who do incredibly with just one of those, but the combination of those can, can be great. And another, I mean, I'll say another downside, you have to look at <clears throat> both sides, of course, but the more information you have, the better it's awesome, but it can also be really complicated and really overwhelming. And I find a lot of parents all of a sudden now have, you know, maybe they decided to order this whole like six, seven, eight different lab tests. And now they have all this information and don't quite know what to do with it because they feel so overwhelmed. And sometimes they're doing this on their own, which another plug for dietitians or a functional medicine provider to help you because it's a lot to interpret and like read between the lines sometimes of like, what is this lab testing say if this value is high and this value is high or like this value is low and this one's high. So having somebody to guide you can really help with the overwhelm. So I would just plugging in overwhelm can be a big piece, but it does really give you a great map to go on just to be more efficient on what you're doing. Even if it's picky eating, it can provide you a nice map of like what foods to not introduce or which foods you really want to spend your time on. So I find that it just helps parents feel like they're so much more targeted and I can make better recommendations too. Right. Absolutely. And I think there's something to be said for like making, you know, setting up your expectations. Like if you're working with someone for six months, how much can you actually accomplish in that time? How many labs do you actually need to accomplish, you know, what you think you can in that time frame? I mean, are you going to be able to do like five panels worth of work in six months? Like probably not probably going to take several, like a year at four, at least I would think. It's so true. And when I was fresh in my private practice, I wanted to do all those tests in a short amount of time. And it just doesn't serve anybody well, because there's so much to dig into each one. It's not just like a one and done deal. And you have retesting that you want to do check in 12 months later to see, okay, are they responding well? So that follow-up is also can get expensive too. And a lot of these tests aren't covered by insurance because some of the typical labs like Quest and um, LabCorp aren't going to have the kind of technology to do these really incredible extensive panels or have just the more conventional like lab testing. Right. Yeah, exactly. So food sensitivity, I wanted to come back to this because this is a huge topic I know for both of us. And I know that we both use the same panel and have a lot of success with the families that we work with. So we also have learned that there are a lot of food sensitivity tests out there. I'm sure you get asked all the time about some of the ones that just show up as ads on your Facebook page. And oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> by who knows what. So tell me which panel you use that I also use. Um, and why do you use this panel? Yeah, I use the MRT food sensitivity test. Sometimes people call it the leap test. Leap is like the, the protocol, like the diet 
that you use once you run the test, but MRT is the actual test and it stands for mediator release test. And it's, I use this because it's, well, <laughs> I've had a, a lot of success and I find it to be much more accurate than the typical IgG food sensitivity, sensitivity testing that is pretty much every other test, I think, is an, as an IgG test for food sensitivities. The MRT is a patented test, so there's no yeah. other tests like Yeah, one, one lab that does, that does it. So yeah, IgG is, you know, it's okay, but like, I guess I'll give an example. Food sensitivities can show up in a lot of different ways, right? Like a person can have one person can have an apple cause a migraine and one person can have an apple cause a skin rash. Like it's going to be different for different people. But the one thing they all have in common, food sensitivity reactions, is inflammation. So IgG tests measure a specific pathway that that reaction can occur. And that reaction, that pathway would be an IgG pathway. But there's lots of other pathways that aren't being measured by IgG tests. So you're lucky <laughs> if you're reaction is from an IgG pathway and the IgG test measures that great. Now we've figured it out, but if it doesn't, it's going to fly under the radar, but the MRT test is different because it actually measures compounds in the blood. So also that's why they call them, they're called mediators, um, released in the body and that they're the end result of the inflammatory reaction. So it doesn't care what pathway the inflammation took to occur. It's just, um, measuring the end markers of the inflammation. Which at the end of the day, to me, if something's causing inflammation, it doesn't matter to me whether it's an IgG reaction, an IgA reaction. What matters to me is the treatment and how are we going to focus to remove this food? Because the end solution is the same, whether it's one antibody or another, it's removal of that food. There's also some information showing that even if an IgG test picks up on like higher IgG levels, that it might not necessarily even be accurate because your body can still create antibodies that might not be causing inflammation. Now the MRT yeah. can pick up on something not causing inflammation it's right. going to pick up on those mediators and not mm -hmm. just that particular antibody. So I find that interesting too. And so, you know, if that were the case, that would mean a false positive on just right. a regular IgG panel. Right. The other awesome thing about the MRT panel is because it's picking up those mediators, those like end results of the inflammatory process, it can pick up things that are like clinical signs of inflammation. So things that we can see, but also subclinical. So like things that are not yet reached, they haven't reached that point yet where we can see them. So you can like pre preemptively address issues, which is so, so great. I mean, there's enough going on with autism. We don't need issues like creeping up down the road. What a, like, what a treat <laughs> to be able to, to address it now. Totally. And I mean, kind of going back to picky eating too, and looping this in, it's like so many kids on the spectrum are really picky eaters. Why are you going to want to be spending all this time introducing a new food that's going to be causing issues either now or later mm -hmm. and not waste your time, but almost where you could have been I spending am. your time more efficiently on a food that is not creating inflammation for them is also feeding the good bacteria in the gut. Like if you did a stool panel or is repleting a nutrient deficiency and you can just be so much more targeted with that and feel like, you know, a lot more efficient and oh, yeah. 
know what's going to be more helpful for your child. 100%, especially if you have a nonverbal child and they can't tell you that they're having a reaction to something. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So true. I have a lot of parents who will say, I don't think my child knew what it felt like to feel good. Or I actually just had someone earlier this week just say, I think that we finally gotten him to a baseline. I don't think that we knew his baseline and now we can tell when he's not feeling well. Right. Versus that was how he always was. So we just thought that was his baseline, but now his feel good baseline where he can't necessarily tell them he's feeling good, but he sure does show it. And then when he gets a hold of something that he's sensitive to or something that just doesn't agree with him, she was like, he's back to his, his previous self, which is not his best self. And so it just helps them see how much he's thriving and how much better he feels in his body having removed or added in different things. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's, that rings very true. So a lot of people get confused because they've done food allergy testing and they say, oh, I don't need to do food sensitivity testing now because I already did food allergy testing. Both of us know that those are completely different tests, but can you explain a little bit about the difference? Oh, sure. Yeah. So food allergies happen through a pathway called the IgE pathway. And that is what food allergy tests, like a skin prick test, that's what that's MRT test does not look at food allergies. So if your child has an anaphylactic reaction to dairy, MRT is not going to pick that up. You need a specific food allergy test for that. And in, you know, in that same vein of food allergy test is not going to pick up food sensitivities like, like an MRT panel would. Exactly. A lot of people get confused and we'll see peanuts on the MRT and say, well, my child, do they need an EpiPen? I'm like, no, no, no. This is a completely different panel. And then in, in, you know, the, the opposing view too, I have people say, well, my child didn't come back allergic to dairy, so they wouldn't benefit from a dairy free diet. And I'm like, we don't know that yet. They actually could have a dairy sensitivity and that would be picked up by the MRT. They could also have a lactose intolerance, which is another way to react to food, which wouldn't be picked up on the MRT, but you can, you can usually tell from lactose. So I, I do have an episode all about the differences between allergy sensitivities and intolerances. It's early on in the podcast. So if anyone wants to hear a deep, deep dive on that, but I think for the what you need to know bottom line is just that they're different and they're not going to have overlaps on them. Yeah, for sure. And I hear a lot of people say that they're allergic, like they want a food sensitivity panel and their allergist will say, sure, I'll test for food allergies. And even the allergist will not know the difference that they will think they're one in the same. I've heard this, I honestly, I can't even count how many times. So there may be some opportunity here for you know, maybe sharing information with the allergist, or if they're just not going to help you, then just be aware that the two tests are different and you should find someone else who will do the MRT panel. So you're getting a full scope. So you can know if there's any true allergies and you can also know what sensitivities are going on. Definitely. And if an allergist does recognize that sensitivities are different, a lot of times they'll say, well, no test is accurate. And to that, I partially agree, just like we've talked about, Many food sensitivity tests out there on the market aren't very accurate, but a lot of allergists, I would say, aren't very familiar with MRTs because almost 
you know, the entire population that offers this panel are registered dietitians because I think that you need to be in order to give this kind of guidance. There's a lot of dietary change that comes along with it. And if you're not a dietary or you're not a registered dietitian, I think that that is an issue to not have. Oh, that. absolutely. Yeah. I actually don't know how, who else would be more qualified. I don't think there's anyone who would be more qualified to like help administer that the diet changes that would that are required it's yeah it's not not easy to do and there's a lot of like reading between the lines of interpreting the panel yeah yeah dietitians definitely that's where you need to be <laughs> i completely agree and especially if a child is a picky eater you can't just go removing 10 different foods because that can lead you into nutrient deficiency and all these other nutritional issues or can even make the picky eating worse because now the child doesn't trust you or food anymore because all of their preferred foods were taken out. And I typically use the approach, let's add before we subtract. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to do this overnight. We can make progress just by making small changes. But when it comes to severe picky eating, we really have to take that into consideration instead of just saying, well, just stop feeding them gluten and dairy or whatever it is mm-hmm. that came up on the panel. If they eat six foods and they're all gluten and dairy, they're not just going to eat when they're hungry. If they have autism and are a extremely picky eater. So I think that's another reason why you really need a dietitian to work alongside you on that, because there's other implications in removing foods that you really have to consider. Oh, absolutely. And not just like any dietitian, but like someone, especially with autism, someone who's knows what they're talking about with either specifically picky eating or specifically picky eating with autism. Because yeah, I think that's also one of the reasons that parents might be hesitant to run the panel. They're like, well, what if this panel says my child is um, sensitive to all these foods that they eat, then they won't eat anything if I have to remove those foods. And I would just assure them that, you know, we, I, I want your kid to have as many food options as possible to remove the foods that they are the only foods that they're eating would be like shooting myself in the foot. So, you know, there's, there's ways around it and there's ways to do it like progressively and slowly and going after, I guess the, the heavy hitters can make a huge difference. So for example, if someone has a sensitivity to dairy a lot and they're constipated, a lot of times relieving that constipation can improve the appetite. And now you have you know, you're getting yourself moving against the picky eating, but having someone who knows what they're doing in that regard is huge. I was going to bring the exact same point up. So back to what we were talking about, and the goal is just helping kids feel better. Well, if they're eating all these foods that they're sensitive to, of course, they're going to feel fatigued and have headaches and tummy aches and all of these other symptoms. If we can, let's say a child had five foods and they're sensitive to almost all of them, Well, we can start off, we can find an alternative first that doesn't include a bunch of those foods. They may start feeling better. They might start opening up their repertoire to try new foods. Then we're able to make these transitions quicker when they start feeling better. A lot of times I see eating and food sensitivities go hand in hand. And when we can start that transition, kids all of a sudden start trying and exploring all these new foods that they never would because now they feel comfortable and now they're not anxious that a food is going to hurt their tummy or make them feel bad. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. So a lot of people are maybe a little bit hesitant to get blood tests because they feel overwhelmed that maybe their child won't do well with it. And the blood draw in itself, maybe parents also don't 
like blood draws too. Can you talk a little bit about that and typically what you say to parents who feel hesitant? The biggest thing I try to do for my parents, I work with mobile phlebotomists who can come to the home, which is so nice. They're in, you know, the child's in their own environment. They, you, you have all the tools at your disposal to distract your child. So they will hopefully sit still, you know, iPad, music, whatever, whatever you might need to do. It also takes away some of the worry for the parents, like being in a strange setting. Like, what if I need to like hold my child down for a second? You know, they're going to feel more inclined to do that probably in their own home. The other thing I remind parents of is like these mobile phlebotomists do these types of draws on kids with autism all the time. They are fast. They know what they're doing. They do this all day long. So, and I can attest to that because I've had one of the mobile phlebotomists I use the most, I had her come do my own blood draw just to, just to be sure. Like, I want to know what my clients are going through. So yeah, I can, I can attest. The other thing I, I recommend is there's like there are creams that can like take away the sensation of the pinch. I have my clients often use a topical lidocaine and put it on their arm like 15 minutes before the mobile phlebotomist is supposed to arrive. They can also take some saran wrap. That's one thing that I learned from one of them and wrap it around their arm so that it's not going to get on their hands or any other place on their body. And then when the phlebotomist gets there, we take off that wrap. You could also use, you know, that really stretchy, wrap that they put on your arm when you're like after you've gotten a blood draw you can yeah, yeah. Well, I feel like that would feel a little bit more comfortable mm-hmm. I've also had people who will use those little you know those like handheld little back massagers as well yeah. and they just vibrate they'll mm-hmm. put that around the area where it kind of desensitizes it and they'll work on that the week leading up to the blood draw and they'll even use that during the blood draw to try and like take that initial pain, like that little stick away. And I've had some clients have success with that too. So it's really interesting. I always recommend when you call a mobile phlebotomist, because I completely agree. One, you don't have to travel. And a lot of times that just causes anxiety for kids too. They're tired, Mm -hmm. hungry, by the time they get there, they have to wait, but being able to just be in their home just makes them so much more comfortable, but call them ahead of time, talk to them, ask if they have experience, or if there is somebody who has experience with kids on the spectrum, what they would do if you've had, you know, a traumatic past experience, just talking through some of those worries that you have and making sure that you have the right person for you. I agree. There's been so many of my clients who are like, I don't know what I would have done if I wouldn't have gotten a mobile phlebotomist. So, yeah. and I like to, for MRT, they have a lab draw finder where you can find Mm -hmm. a draw or a mobile phlebotomist in your area or a specific clinic. I know like any lab tests now, I believe they still send people out as well. But I really like that they have that resource to make it easier on the patient. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I I thought I just thought about that I'd forgotten before was like, we used to use this with with Lawrence all the time, like visual cards. So, and then, you know, some kind of treat at the end. So it's sometimes unpleasant, you know, preparing them for it. Like, okay, we're going to, if it was the doctor or something, which in his case it was, okay, go to the doctor, sit here, wait, go into the room, lift up your sleeve, prick your arm, band-aid, and then treat (laughs) some kind of, you know, go to the park or whatever that might be. So like preparing the child ahead of time, even with those visual cards can be really helpful. So they know what's coming and they know that it's not forever. There's something after this that's really good. 
I think you're so right. And we can even count, like countify, we can go through this routine of them. If they are going into a clinic, go there beforehand, let them explore it. Even if it's minutes in between a session of somebody else, but having that visual schedule is helpful for anybody, but especially if a child is non-speaking, be able to visualize and expect what is coming. I think that that's a great idea. Even having like a visual timer while things are going on, I would talk to the mobile phlebotomist before doing anything like that, of course, but I think a visual schedule can benefit everybody. Yeah, usually helpful. Or PECs, like a PEC system or the mm-hmm. child uses um, some sort of AAC device, like being able to communicate with them in that moment so that they can understand what is going on. Right. Yeah, definitely takes that. I mean, for anybody, like knowing expectations, knowing what's going to happen takes away so much of the, the fear or um, hesitation. Definitely. I completely agree. And then, I mean, we also mentioned, you know, the micronutrient testing, which is also a blood draw. And then there's the stool testing, which is the least invasive. You just collect a stool sample, which is nice. But I find most people are more worried about the blood draw rather than the stool collection. Well, it might not be pleasant. (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to say, I think if I had a choice, I'd probably do the blood draw, <laughs> knowing what's involved with both. But yeah, if it was just me and I wasn't dealing with a child, but yes, definitely, definitely the blood collection has so much, so much um, hesitancy around it. And I can understand. I mean, I don't want, I want to take my own kid to get a blood, their blood drawn. And some, some labs too, not the MRT, but some labs will have a fingerprint option for some kids. Of course, it decreases the amount of information that you get. And a lot of times it's not the exact same panel, but if that's going to be the only option for a child, I like that they offer that. I honestly often see though, that the blood draw is easier than a finger prick. I'll be honest. I did do a finger prick micronutrient on myself to compare to the blood draw. And honestly, it, like if I was a kid, I would have been terrified. There's a lot of blood. Like you've got to, you've got to squeeze your finger. You've got to get, it's way, way less painless. I mean, I don't know if this helps anyone, but it, I think it's a much less painless process to do an actual outright blood draw. I agree. Especially if you took some of those steps, like using topical lidocaine or some of those other. And I also say, always stay as like, get your child as hydrated as possible. And that's just going to oh, make for sure go way quicker and easier. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. With the finger stick too, like you might have to do multiple sticks to make sure. Yeah. Overall, I mean, it's not terrible, but for a kid, I would think it's it's definitely more unpleasant. It's also a good option if you live kind of in the middle of nowhere and there isn't any mobile phlebotomists or there aren't any mobile phlebotomists nearby. It's great because you can do a finger prick in your home. So that really opens up uh, that option to more people, but I- Totally agree with you on the blood draw. So, well, hopefully that'll help families feel a little bit more confident with that too. And if anyone is interested in the MRT, first of all, I mean, Lisa offers it. <laughs> so she's a great resource. And then, but what you're looking for is uh, someone who's a certified CLT, which stands for certified leap therapist. And they're going to have those uh, initials at the end of their, or those credentials at the end of their name as well. Right. So Elisa, how can people find you? So you can read more about my story or the work that I do on my website, 
And that's alisaroxrdn.com. And then I have a contact page there too. So that's really the best way to connect with me. I am on Instagram, but I'll be honest, I hate social, social media and I'm usually chasing around two kids. So I don't have a ton of time to be on there, but I do have an Instagram and that's just at alisaroxrdn. Amazing. Yeah. You're a great follow. I love following you. And I mean, the information that you put out, obviously you write for the library and it's always amazing. So I can totally vouch for your work as well. Yeah. Thank you. I try to keep it like Instagram. I just, I go on there to see funny stuff. So I try to do things that are really like lighthearted and funny, but yeah, thank you. <laughs> totally. My, my fun social media, I get on TikTok so that I can separate work and fun. Oh, that's good. Yeah. You can zone out on TikTok and then Instagram becomes work for me. <laughs> I have yet to explore TikTok. I'm afraid that I will. Do all. <laughs> Everyone says don't do it. So I'm just taking the advice. I'm like, all right, I don't, I don't think it's going to be good. for me. Oh, it's not good. It, yeah. You can be on there for like an hour and no time has passed. So I'm sorry. <laughs> I love it, but don't do it. <laughs> exactly. My sister says. Well, thank you so much for being here and chatting through this with me. I know so many people have questions about food sensitivity testing. So I think this is going to answer a lot of those questions that people have and help them feel a little bit more confident in pursuing that and moving forward. So thank you for being here. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was great. Awesome. Cool. Okay. Easy. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Nutrition Library, a one-stop hub and community for all things autism nutrition, created to help you explore evidence-based nutrition approaches that have proved to be effective to help individuals with autism feel their best, do their best, and be their best. Join now by visiting autismnutritionlibrary.com or by stopping by my Instagram at autismdietitian. See you next week.